on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. I remember as a kid being like, whoa, is that? Because I've been a dancer since I was four years old. And I'm like, wow, like I always thought it would be so cool to be able to have a career as a dancer when you get older, right? It seems like a dream job. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, if that's what it's like, then I don't think I want to be a dancer when I grow up. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 125 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Clay T. White, the director of the Oral History Research Center at UNLV. Ms. White was kind enough to join me for a conversation about Black history and the African-American community in Las Vegas. We talked about segregation in Las Vegas, the founding of the famed Moulin Rouge, and what led to integration on the Vegas Strip. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 124, Las Vegas Black History, The Rise and Fall of the Moulin Rouge. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. There are some awesome Vegas movies out there. Classics like Casino, Ocean's Eleven, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. There are also some terrible Vegas movies out there. The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, 3,000 Miles to Graceland, and Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 come to mind. I think it's fair to say that the film up for discussion in this episode of the podcast falls somewhere in the middle. Considered to be one of the biggest box office bombs of all time, 1995's Showgirls, written by Joe Esterhaus, directed by Paul Verhoeven, and starring Saved by the Bell's Elizabeth Berkley, has morphed into a huge cult classic. Thanks to its steady stream of nudity and gratuitous sex, the film garnered an NC-17 rating, and to this day remains the only film with that rating that had a wide release in mainstream theaters across the U.S. And although Showgirls wasn't based on a true story per se, Esther Haas and Verhoeven claimed they did extensive interviews with people in the Vegas entertainment community to make the portrayal of the world of the Showgirl as accurate as possible. So... Did they get it right? We're about to find out. And who better to tell us than an actual Las Vegas showgirl? Making her second appearance on the podcast is Danny Elizabeth, a former cast member of the legendary Las Vegas shows Jubilee and Crazy Girls. Danny shared the story of the first time she saw Showgirls and how it almost led to a career change. We dove deep into the film with some character analysis and theories on why people watch Showgirls over and over again, and we compared Danny's life as a showgirl to that of Nomi Malone's. Please enjoy my conversation with Danny Elizabeth. (laughs) 
I have to be totally honest with you. There was a part of me that was a bit nervous about asking you to come on the podcast for this episode because you are like a legitimate Las Vegas entertainer who's worked as a showgirl in some pretty big productions. And there was a part of me that was concerned that you were going to be offended if I reached out to you and said, Hey, can you come on my podcast and, and have a conversation about this goofy movie that basically <laughs> mocks a, a, a business that you were a part of for a very long time? I mean, you, you have to you have to know that that is asked by like the average person at least like one out of three times. And somebody will say, so is like being a showgirl. Is it really like showgirls? And some people feel a little shy to ask. And some people are just like, yeah, tell me everything. But it's honestly because, I mean, what are the percentage of showgirls in the world that have actually worked in a production show? It's it's very small, right? There's like handfuls compared to the amount of people in this world. So how would anyone really know? And there's never been, which I think there should have been, there's never been like a backstage like reality show with all the reality things, all the garbage TV. It would be cool, even if, you know, because part of the problem is it's topless. So they couldn't bring cameras because at Jubilee, they did talk about it. But no, I think it's a, it's a very valid question. I still get asked that by many people all the time and you can't be offended by it because that's all people really know unless they've gone and seen a show. And even then they're like, what's really happening behind scenes? Like when the curtain closes, I get it. Well, that makes me very happy then. I'm, I'm glad that you have a, a good sense of humor about the whole thing and that you were able to, to make some time to, to come on and have a conversation with me. So I really appreciate it. Um, let's start off talking about the movie itself and um, the first time you ever saw Showgirls. Do you remember the first time you saw the movie? I do. Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure I was in high school because I think the movie came out in 95. So... Um, uh, I was I was a little too young then, but when I was in high school, um, I saw it, and um, I and they used to play it on like HBO late night TV, and that's like back when we you know had if you had like all the channels, you would sit and watch TV, and because we didn't stream things like in the early two thousands really, and uh, and I remember just sitting around like, and I think I came across it on TV, and I'm like, what is this movie? <laughs> this is so strange. And I, I think I was actually with a couple of my um, friends from high school. And they're like, we were just sitting there just talking about it. I'm like, what is this bizarre? And I was like, wow. And I remember as a kid being like, whoa, is that? Because I've been a dancer since I was four years old. And I'm like, wow. Like, I w always thought it would be so cool to be able to have a career as a dancer when you get older, right? It seems like a, a dream job. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, if that's what it's like, then I don't think I want to be a dancer when I grow up. <laughs> so so that first impression of the movie, then, it, it almost scared you right out of a career. Yes, absolutely. Because of all of the, the things that you see, this character, uh, um, Elizabeth Berkeley, which, by the way, when, you know, 2099, like around those those few years, Saved by the Bell growing up, when it, like before that was... I watched that all the time, like, and then they would play it before school would start. So we'd have it on like in the TV, you know, behind. And I was just obsessed with that show. And so I was like, oh my gosh, Elizabeth Berkeley, like, what did she do when she grew up, what grow up in her career? And I see this movie. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's what she did. Cool. But I'm not sure I want to be a dancer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so over all these years now that you've been watching the movie, how many times do you think you've seen it? Oh man, I I mean it, it. I mean, gosh, it's been 
what has it been now? Like since I first saw it, it's been probably about 22 years. I It's probably been hundreds, you know, bits and pieces, hundreds. It's like, and it's not one of those things that I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't seen Showgirls in a year. I've got to watch that this weekend. It's not that vibe. It's just one of those things that it's always around, you know, it's always pops up and it's always pushed in different areas. Like, like I said, when I was younger, it was always on late night on HBO. And then I've seen it on streaming devices. It's like one of those movies that you're like, oh, cool. Like, I just want to like zone out to something now. And it's one of those things that I'll just pop on and I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. Like while I'm working on something or <laughs> it just has, it just has that, uh, that connection to it. And I don't even really understand how or why I've got a couple theories on it, but it's just amazing to me how this movie, it was such a flop um, when it first came out. And it's still something that we talk about. I mean, this conversation, right? Like it's, it was wild. Yeah. You know what? I'm with you on that. It's not one of those movies that I'll go out of my way to watch, but if I'm flipping through the guide on the cable box and I see that Showgirls is on, yeah, I'll flip to the channel and I'll watch it, even if it's the broadcast TV version where everything is bleeped out and things are blurred out and it's been edited down. I will even watch that version. 100% same. Sometimes I even like that version better because it's it's to have it on in the background or while you're doing something. Uh, the the unedited version can be very distracting because you're like, ooh, like there's some cringy moments, whether it's just like super cheesy or just like super over the top. And uh, so I like both versions. I'll take either or. <laughs> you mentioned um, cringy moments in the movie. And I mean, it's there's a lot of them. But I mean, for you, what what would you say is the most cringy moment of the movie for you? Um, well, I mean, the first one that comes like right out of that um, is on a serious note is the you know, uh, the place where Molly um, uh, Nomi's friends, right? I think that's the character's name, Molly, where she's raped by this celebrity. Mm-hmm. And that moment is just so painful to watch. Uh, and, and we've seen, we're not jaded to uh, scenes like that, but for some reason in this movie, it, it still is cringy for me. And I think it's maybe also because the, the dynamic between um, who Molly is as a person. So she's so not a part of that world. She is because she does wardrobe for the show, Um, but she's such a good hearted. uh, She's the only good hearted person really in the entire movie. She's the only one that you're like, Oh, like I could be friends with that person because everybody else, they show this evil side to every, every person. So to see the only character that has a heart and that happened to her, and you're so uh, committed to her because you get to know her throughout the movie. And maybe that's the reason why it's extra cringy. Um, but that's a cringe one. Um, right from the very beginning, when the movie opens up where Elizabeth Berkeley gets her knife out in the car and it, and it's not, there's nothing that happens, but just that scene. And she's just all hard. And she's like, I got my knife and I'm a badass. And it's like, okay, well, yeah. Like you, you, you asked him basically to pull over. You chose to get in the car. Like <laughs> you could start maybe a little less threatening, but you know, maybe that was her way of saying, you know, I need this ride, but don't mess with me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is interesting that you bring up the point about Molly being the only good person in the movie. I hadn't watched the movie for a very long time. And of course, before we had this conversation, I sat down and really, watched it in earnest and um 
I had actually kind of forgotten about that scene where where Molly gets raped by by Andrew Carver, by the the famous singer and all of his his goons. And as I'm watching the movie, it was almost like something was triggered in my brain. I'm watching it and it's coming up to that part and I'm thinking, oh, oh, God, oh, oh, shit, this is about to happen. Oh, oh, why? Why you got to do that to poor Molly? She's the only good person in the movie. And and upon further analysis, you're you're absolutely correct. She is legitimately the only good person in the entire film. Yeah. She's the only nice one. And even um, Nomi's, uh, I forget what his name is, but the dancer guy that she meets that like kind of wants to protect her and help her out and stuff. Uh, He's got some nice moments, but he still does some really cringy, you know, things. He was, I mean, they weren't in a relationship, but he was, you know, with another girl and kind of, I think Nomi felt betrayed by that. And, and, you know, he just said some really harsh things to coming out of a good place, but he just had some really cringy, like kind of evil moments as well. Whereas Molly, just the most innocent character. And it's so interesting, like to see how there's only one. And they had to have done that on purpose to show this whole evil, evil world. And then this one pure little spirit. And I think that that helped to make the impact of that scene so much um, harsher. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what is it you think that makes this movie the type of movie that people will watch over and over and over again? I mean, it, it's it's a terrible movie. It's there's no question that it's not a good movie. And I mean, everything from from terrible dialogue to gratuitous nudity to cringeworthy sex scenes to just all of it. It's it's not a stellar film. And yet here we are still talking about it and, and still watching it on a very regular basis. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I, I have a couple different theories on that and maybe it's different for everyone. I know for me, uh, I feel like it's like watching a train crash, right? Like you can't take your eyes off of it. It's like, it's like, Oh, that's so bad. It's, it's so bad. It's so good kind of thing. And I know for me personally, and I probably have a little bit of a biased opinion about this because I, I am a dancer and, and now I have worked um, in a showgirl production show, but I just love all of the um, moments that they show when they're on stage. I mean, the production value of the moments. Yes, there is very cheesy movements and some cheesy interactions on stage, but I just love watching. I'm like, oh my gosh, like to be a performer, it reminds me of the show I did, Jubilee, where you're on stage with a hundred people and you've got fire coming up and water and, you know, they're riding motorcycles out. Like the show I work, worked in wasn't even to that extent. So um, there's some really just cool uh, shots and scenes in the movie. Um, and if you're a fan of Vegas, which, you know, I'm a huge fan. Um, I love seeing all the different places that they'll film things. And I, you know, you see the casinos and now because the movie did take place uh, in 95, so much here in Vegas has changed. So when you look at something like, oh, wow, like, look at that casino or that looks different. And and so I, I love that aspect of it. Um, but I also um, have been told that this movie was kind of, brought to life very quickly by the queer community. Um, And since it came out, like drag queens are like, oh my gosh, I'm Nomi, you know, and they're, you know, they even have made plays about it. 
And uh, in the in that community, it's still a huge thing. They always talk about it. Um, and so over the years, I've had a lot of friends tell me, like, bring that up. And I'm like, why are you why are you guys like talking about that? And they're like, girl, like you saw the way she did her nails. I'm doing that to mine. I'm like, really? Like, it's still a very uh, talked about movie um, and admired movie by uh, the community. So I think that that's helped to keep it alive. Um, and then I think the rest of us just really enjoy watching trains crash into things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really is the ultimate train wreck movie. I mean, as you say, you, you just you can't look away from this film, whether it's the the terrible dialogue or the gratuitous nudity or the horrible sex scenes or or any of it. I mean, again, you just you can't look away and, and and as you say i mean the show that they they do in this film goddess it, it it really is an incredible show the production value is pretty amazing and and you can almost picture yourself is sitting in the audience watching that show oh 100 yeah it makes you want to be uh at that show or in the show i mean it's and uh, it's so glamorous. And then, you know, the interviews that they have with the principal dancers after and, and they'll be out and, and, you know, random people will come up to them and asking for autographs. Like they, they really put the glamour in the aspect of what it's like to be a showgirl. And that being said, that was my main reason for wanting to get you on the podcast to have this conversation about the film Showgirls. Having been an actual showgirl in actual Las Vegas productions, I wanted to see exactly how close to reality this film got. Now, admittedly, this movie is is not based on a true story by any stretch of the imagination, but the director and the writer of the movie, uh, Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus, they claim that they did extensive interviews with uh, strippers and showgirls and choreographers and directors and producers and hotel and casino owners to try to get this as close to reality as possible. So I wanted to find out from somebody who actually is involved in the business how close to the mark they they actually got. Yeah. We're going to start off with the audition process. Nomi's audition process, she is scouted at the strip club that she works at. She goes in with a few other girls. She meets the prick producer, supremely played by Alan Rakins, who is bald but wearing a toupee for this particular movie. Um, she goes through the motions. She storms out of the audition and somehow still manages to land the gig. I am going to go out on a limb. I'm willing to bet that your audition process uh, was nothing like this. Not even, not even close. Way different. And now, uh, you know, keep in mind, maybe in the 80s, you know, there were more cringy moments for dancers. But when I auditioned, uh, you know, in the last, I'd say, 25, 20 years or so, things have become a lot more corporate and, you know, there's HR departments and uh, PC politically correct moments that have to be honored. So when I auditioned, it's just like going to any other audition. You, you know, you wear a leotard or, you know, briefs and uh, like a two piece. And it actually is a very extensive um, 
uh, audition process, we had to do uh, learn tap choreography. We had to learn um, jazz choreography, and then we had to do ballet um, across the floor. So it took a few hours to get through it. Um, and then after that, yes, uh, they do bring you into a private room. Um, and Diane Palm, she uh, was the company producer for Jubilee. And she started in Jubilee when it first opened as a, a, a dancer in it. And then she moved up. And so then because Don Arden was no longer around and uh, the company producer Fluff, she took Diane in as the assistant. And then when I finished, she was now the company producer. Um, but it was very professional. And then they would, uh, after the audition, if they kept you, uh, one by one, take you into a private room, like a little office, and they could take one at a time. And um, you would take your top off so that she could see, because uh, they also wanted to make sure that um, you didn't have uh, implants, because that was not preferred. They preferred small and pretty over huge and uh, fake. So um, they would do that, but it was very, felt very comfortable and she was very professional and uh, very caring about it. Uh, and then after that, we'd go back out into the main room and then they would also uh, measure us our height. So we'd stand up against the wall and she would write that down as well, just to make sure that no one's lying on the resume. Cause we all try to get a little <laughs> bit extra in there. Cause if you don't know, um, the taller you are, uh, the better it is to land a showgirl job. And then that's it. And then you go home and you wait for a phone call. And then when she called me and she was like, yes, Danny, so we'd like to offer you the position. And they have two different positions. You're either a bluebell or a showgirl, um, which is like the bluebell are covered dancers and the showgirl um, showgirls are uh, topless dancers, which Diane said that she didn't even really like to use the term showgirl because she thought that showgirl didn't, uh, didn't honor how much you actually dance. She thinks, because uh, back when this whole showgirl thing came about, the showgirls were more statuesque. So they, they were the six two Amazon uh, women that wore the big giant costumes in the back. And then all the other dancers would be in front and some were topless, some weren't. And now that has changed. And at Jubilee, if you were the showgirl or topless track, you still dance just as much as the covered track did. But um, yeah, so when she called me and, and asked me if I would take the position, I, of course, jumped right on it and then went into uh, moved to Vegas. And we had about a month long, um, a month long rehearsal process. So what you're saying then is at no point did anybody hand you a, a, a bowl of ice and say, take your top off and show me your, mm, you know, I, again, I mean, speaking of cringy moments that that was without a doubt, one of the cringiest. Super cringy. I was like, whoa, no wonder why she stormed out of there. I would too. And <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's so not like that. It's so much more, at least from my experience. Again, I don't know if somebody in the 80s felt differently, but I know at Jubilee, it, it wasn't like that. Even when Don Arden, the head producer, and he, I've heard stories that he might have been a little bit, had some of those aspects of like the sleazy producer moments, but he was uh, a very professional, um, you know, producer and cared about his dancers to the end. So I would have to say, yeah, that's definitely a very embellished um, scene. <laughs> you talked about after you landed your gig in, um, in Jubilee, it was a month's worth of rehearsals before you were into the show, slightly different 
story compared to what the hero of our movie, Nomi Malone, goes through, where she, uh, after storming out of her audition, she still gets the gig and she shows up at the office that morning in her Versace dress. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, after only one afternoon of rehearsals, she is swung into the production that night. What you're telling me is that doesn't happen. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we would uh, we had rehearsals six days a week, and maybe it was a little less than a than a month. But no one, I'm pretty sure it was about a month of of rehearsals because you not only do you have to learn all of the numbers, um, but then you have to learn when you have a hundred people on stage, you you have to know your traffic, and that takes time. That takes just as much time to learn that, if not more than the actual choreography. Because if, if, it's, if you have 100 people and everybody's moving and you're just a slight hair out of place, and I've seen it happen, you'll get whacked by somebody else's costume that's sticking five feet off their back, you know? So, yeah. And, and the other moment, too, is when she becomes the principal, the lead, and then she jumps into that, like, that night. I'm like, you, you didn't have any rehearsals whatsoever. Like, that's a difficult spot to learn, you know, that quickly. It's uh, very, very embellished, but obviously I, I don't think the the director of the movie cared so much about the logistics of, uh, you know, that side. He was more about the, the drama. That's what he spent time with in that movie. Do you remember the first time you hit the stage with, with Jubilee? Yes. I was extremely nervous. I wasn't nervous about being topless. I forgot I was even topless. I was nervous that Oh, did I, you know, some of these costumes are huge. You have to, and you, and that's another thing in rehearsals, you spend time getting fitted for the wardrobe and you do one run through with all the costumes on. And sometimes with the rehearsals, like you might put your hat on, just feel the weight, but it's a very new feeling having those costumes on when um, you, you do your first show and not to mention all of the pieces that go with it. You have a big jewelry um, armband and you have like a a wristband. Sometimes you have these necklaces and um, the bras and all the things that snap and this and that. So I was nervous that, Oh, do I have all my pieces? Do I have everything on? I'm not going to lose something on stage. I have the right backpack. Is my hat going to stay on? Because how distracting is that when it starts sliding and you're trying to dance on a football field uh, size stage? So I, and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And I just, I felt like I was having an outer body experience. Um, but people will ask me all the time. I'm like, oh, was it because it was the first time you were topless in front of all those people? I thought, no, you, I, I forgot I was even topless. I mean, it feels like you're wearing, you're wearing more clothes when you have those costumes on because some of them are so heavy and, and so complex. After the break, we talk backstage drama in the fictional production of Goddess and Danny's opening night fears as she hits the stage in the real-life production of Jubilee. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. Other than just general overall nervousness, were there any specific fears that you had when you walked out onto the stage for that very first show? One of my biggest fears, uh, and and this fear actually would come back every once in a while, and I had to play some mind games with myself, and I'm not the only one. I, I had other friends that like had these, these thoughts and moments, but one of my biggest fears uh, for the finale scene 
there is a cascade of stairs that come down. And so we come up from the back and walk down the stairs and it's like hundreds of stairs. And when you wear these finale costumes, you can't look down because you look down, the weight of the headdress will cause you to topple forward. So there's a technique that you do when you're walking, you look straight out and you feel with the back of your heel and you feel the stair and you do that down hundreds of stairs. And so my biggest fear, and that's what everybody talks about in rehearsals. They're like, don't stress about the stairs and the costume. You'll be fine. Um, but that night, that first full week, I was always nervous about the finale stairs because there were stories of, of women that had gone down. And about a year later, um, I skipped a stair. I don't know what maybe my adrenaline was going. I don't know if there was somebody in the audience or something. But um, I went down, I thought I felt it, I skipped it and I caught myself, but I, I, and you can't look down. So you're just hoping and praying that your feet will find a stair before your face does. <laughs> so, oh my God. so yeah, it, it, that would, that was the biggest fear that night. I'm like, I, w- I would rather go out there, butt naked. <laughs> it'll have all my costumes fall <laughs> off of me, then go tumbling down the stairs because um, it's happened to other people and they even became injured over it. Did you count the stairs? Like, did you know in your head there's 147 stairs here? And if all of a sudden you got to the bottom and you only counted 146, it was like, yeah. oh, shit. What, which one did I miss? <laughs> um, I, at one point I did. And 100 might be a little bit of an exaggeration. There might have been more like 64 stairs, uh, 60, something like that. But I would count them because in the music, depending on which track you're in, you might go down eight stairs and then you pause and there's somebody next to you and there's like six people in front of you, a couple stairs down spaced in between each person and the same with behind you. But you would have these moments where then you pause and you do something with your arms and it's like beautiful girls and it's a picture esque type moment. And then you would have to travel like inward and outward on the stairs as you're going down. And so you create these uh, formations of these women in these beautiful costumes with these pause moments. So I would count because the, the hardest ones were when you had to travel inward as you're going downstairs to hit the middle of this staircase that's like half a football field wide and all these women making different patterns. So I would count. So I would know, OK, I am now like or I would count it in the music. I am now like one eight count down. This is the right stair. So don't freak out because one time I skipped a stair. Now I'm like, oh, I'm not on the same on the right stair. And then I'm you get off your leg and. Because everybody has um, a different leg they have to start with. The girls on the left side, the girls on the right side, so that it, you see this pattern of legs and costumes going downstairs. <laughs> just all it's going to take is that one little lapse in concentration to just completely throw you totally out of whack. 100%. And it, whatever you do, the number one rule was don't look down. Because I think that's a very common thing. If we trip as humans, going downstairs or just walking, I, I sometimes... I'm the most clumsy person off stage. I trip just over a carpet. And the first thing we do is we look down because we're like, oh no, what's going on? What's happening? Like, oh. but when you're on those stairs and you trip or you miss something or your heel catches the lip of the stair weird, the, you just have to have faith in the process that you know exactly how to get your feet settled again. Because the second you look down, like I said, those, the weight of those headdresses, it will cause you tumbling. And so that's the scariest thing. You're like, I can't even, it's like out of your control. 
a few months ago i i went down the steps of my my back deck here and that's like three steps and i don't even know what happened but my brain just temporarily disengaged and was like okay you don't know how to walk anymore and, and so down i went and and it was so embarrassing but i can't even imagine doing that with um like 60 steps and 15 pounds of, of whatever on my head and not being able to look down. If all of the sudden you, you forget how to walk for a moment, you need your brain to kick back into gear so that you can, you can figure it out and get back into sync without killing somebody. Yes. 100%. And then you worry about sticking out like the sore thumb, because when you have you know, 30 girls going down the staircase and everybody's doing choreographed stair stepping. And then you, one person trips and now you're off the stair. Well, you're going to stick out the entire way until you get down to the bottom of that staircase, unless you figure out how to get back on it. <laughs> All of a sudden it's a naked gun sketch is, is what's exactly. happening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, there is a lot of drama backstage at the production of goddess um everything from the opening act causing issues the opening act of course monkeys which apparently uh poop on the stage and get loose and run around backstage in the the dressing room areas to fights between the girls full-on brawls between the girls over everything from makeup to to boyfriends to whatever and then of course this all culminates in one dancer's intentionally spilling beads on the stage to injure another dancer uh, to take her out of the show and then of course nomi pushing crystal down the stairs in a fit of rage in order to to take her spot as the principal dancer in the show um i'm guessing all of this complete and utter bullshit you never saw anything like this at any of your shows yes that stuff didn't happen. I think, you know, they're always, uh, look, if you're going to work in a, a place that has 20 people or a hundred people, there's going to be people that you just don't like or don't get along with. That's just the way the world works, but no one ever sabotaged anyone. No one. I mean, first of all, they'd be fired on the spot if something like that happened. And secondly, most of the people, I mean, I'd say, nine and a half out of 10, um, they were always the loveliest people. I mean, part of the, part of the audition process was also having a conversation, you know, and looking at your resume and the things you've done, like, um, you know, if, if the show was, and not that there's anything wrong with, uh, being, a, a dancer in a strip club, but most of the time they don't have a lot of dance technique and, and that's the industry that they're in. And so if you went to audition for a show and on your resume, because you have to have a resume and a headshot, it's a professional setting. And if on your resume, you only had a list of strip clubs that you worked at, you, would, you wouldn't you would even be asked to, to stay for the audition. They would have dismissed you right, you know, right after the first opening couple things that you learned. So no, it definitely wasn't like that. But I think to go back to what you were saying before, I think that those moments, everybody wants it to be like that, right? Because it's the drama. And I think, that those satirical type qualities in the movie is what helps people coming back to it, right? It's campiness, it's cheesy, like the camp phenomenon of what makes this the, the most epic, epically bad movie. You, it keeps you coming back, right? And I think the entire movie is a bit of a satire, but not just of like 
a showgirl production show or being in that world, but of the entertainment business in general. And so I think there's a lot of moments there. And as we've seen now over the years, like the Me Too movements and and all of these things that have come about with some very respected um, uh, people um, in entertainment that, you know, has shocked me to hear some of these things. Um, I think that I think that these guys that put this movie on had had some of this because they already knew about these things going on. And I think that they were kind of like, ha, 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 like the God, like, this is my way of making a joke about it. But little do you know, this is really like how things are happening in Hollywood and of this nature. So I think that there's a little bit of a deeper message there that they had a fun time kind of putting out there. And then also it's like, because who doesn't, who doesn't want to watch like topless showgirls sabotage each other and like fall down a flight of stairs, damsel in distress, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So what you're saying, and and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek is that uh, Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven, they didn't just set out to make a, a, a raunchy NC 17 movie, but they were almost ahead of the curve on a, a movie that was social commentary on the state of the entertainment industry. Yeah. I think that a lot of those moments, 100% are not, mm. and not maybe done in a way, like some people argue, you know, well, this, this movie really is about like female empowerment and woman power. And yeah, there are some movie, some moments of the movie, like the main character, you know, she, she's leaving her little small town or we don't even know she's from different places. I think she says that many times throughout the movie and, you know, it's just that in, in, in general, keeps people wanting to come back because it's that inspiring tale of, you know, the classic tale of someone leaving their past behind to go chase their big dream in the big city. And in that moment, it's like, oh, okay. Yes. Like I, I want to know her story. Like, is she going to make it? Um, so in some regards, yes, there are female empowerment moments and, and yeah, dancing topless that can, it's very empowering. I find that empowering, but then some of the other sleazy undertones, he's saying, yes, this is about female empowerment, but also don't forget that like, there's a dark side to the world and, uh, and we're running it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because that whole, uh, the whole rape scene too, just how they're all connected. And then that terrible conversation when, um, when the one producer calls the, and tries to fake, fake ream out uh, the guy for kind of soliciting the dancer, but he already knew about it. So he, he did it to kind of cover up, um, you know, all of it. It's like, it's like this group of like evil men that are just like, kind of like, Oh, you're my, you're my showgirl puppet. So these women think they're empowered, but at the same time, they really have only a few, you know, options to, at hand to, mm-hmm. to deal with. Yeah. And, and I would say that some of that um, female empowerment side of the movie makes its way into the scene where Nomi gets her revenge on Andrew Carver. That's one of my favorite scenes, by the way. Yeah. It, she shows up at his hotel room and then just proceeds to beat the living snot out of the guy for what he did to her friend. This is, this is really something that, in all honesty, hadn't I don't think I had ever seen anything like that in a movie before then. Mm-hmm. And she does. And and I love that. And it's it brings me it brings up that moment of like when you're so far low because you see all this happen to her and then she's so 
uh, beat up in the hospital and even Nomi is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. And she, every, like, she feels terrible. And then she goes and gets back a little bit of like, you know, some gratification for her, for her friend and for herself, but it only goes so high because I, and I know it's not part of the movie, but in it, deep down inside, I'm like, well, I want, I want the police to come and lock this guy up. Like, why does everybody, why do all these guys get to decide that nothing is going to be done unless you girls want to go, you know, have a pillow fight with him and not, and make him make his face bleed. That's cool. But that's it. You know what I mean? It like only gives me, it gives me just enough satisfaction and then it just drops back down again. It's kind of almost to the only redeeming moment for Nomi's character. Yeah. In, in the yes. whole movie, I mean, we talked earlier about the how Molly is the only good person in the in the movie and and she gets so badly messed over in this movie and Nomi's such a terrible human being all the way throughout. But this is like just the teensy littlest bit of redemption for for Nomi's character. Yep, 100 percent. And she's like, you know what, if this gets back to them and I get in trouble or at this point, she's uh, she's realized she's not quite as concerned of being this star in the show. She's like, whoa, like my friend was right. There's some really dark things. And either I'm going to have to live in this dark world to look glamorous on stage, or I can go back to my roots and figure out whatever I'm going to do, but I need to protect my friends. And ultimately that's protecting my, who, who I am and my morals and, and what, how I want to live my life. So that moment does give you a glimpse of like, okay, I think she's going to start heading in the direction of like some sanity maybe because she's done a lot of insane things all of a sudden. <laughs> and speaking to that, to a, to a certain degree, there's a moment in the film where Nomi kind of realizes that all of a sudden the target is on her back. There's one particular part where one of the other dancers is, says something to Nomi along the lines of, um, can I be your understudy or, or maybe, maybe I can be your understudy, Nomi, something like that. And she kind of has this realization of, of like, Oh, if I stick around here much longer, I'm going to be the one going down the stairs next. Yeah. And she's like, wow, this is, I'm in this same, it's a cycle. And she also knew because that dancer that asked was the one who stuck up for her and lied and said that Nomi didn't push the other principal down the stairs and vice versa. So now she's like, shoot, I've got this pack with this person. I don't want to have a pack with this person. Like, but you know, she could, it could, it could, I'm basically at her expense because she could change my life for good or bad. And Mm -hmm. with this information that she has on me. And she was like, wow, I think she realizes that I got to figure out what to do. It's either you stay in it where you get out of it. There's a, um, a pretty large part of this film that focuses on the, the lifestyle of the showgirl as well. And it's, it's portrayed as, as being a big party for the most part. I mean, they are hanging out at, at big events with celebrities and they're partying at nightclubs and, and they're attending boat shows and conventions and things like that. How, how accurate was that? Um, I mean, again, that was definitely uh, boosted up a few notches. Um, now, the boat show thing that they did, if we're, we did the show and then a lot of girls would work other gigs. And usually in gigs in town, it's a lot of convention work. Um, 
you know, it's like modeling type work where there's always an event, there's always a convention, there's always some company looking for, um, you know, atmosphere performers. So yes, on our downtime or free time, we, we do usually do those types of things. And now that that moment there was kind of cheesy and, you know, it's like the two guys come again. And no, we go, we, the company will provide us our costumes and we do our couple hours. We get a half hour break on and off. And it's like, you know, anywhere from two to five hours, depending on what the job is. And, and then we go home, we get our paycheck. Um, and the lifestyle itself. Yes. When you're doing working a show, um, you know, you, a lot of times you don't have to be into work until depending on the show, five, six, seven, even nine o'clock, you know, when I did crazy girls, our call time was eight 30 show was at nine 30. So yes, you can sleep in more. And then that means after the show, you know, you don't want to go home and just go to bed. Your adrenaline's up. Even if you do try to, if, if you just go home right after the show, I'll eat my dinner. I'm still up for a few hours. So uh, the nightlife is a little bit more prominent just because it's, it's your lifestyle. But um, in order to do a show six nights a week, that aggressively, you're not, partying your face off every single night. Um, you just wouldn't be able to do it. You, you wouldn't be able to keep your body physically uh, fit and, and the strength and stamina to be able to have um, an aggressive job like this. When you were working as a showgirl, did you ever have one of those experiences that kind of made you take a step back and go, holy crap, like if it wasn't for the fact that I was in this show, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, when I was in Jubilee, I mean, there's CeeLo Green, Britney Spears, J-Lo. We did things with all of them. Uh, for example, Britney Spears, when she announced her residency here in Vegas, um, she was doing this whole thing over down at the, the link and they had this outdoor stage um, where she was getting a, a key to the city. So, and they wanted to film that. So they had after Jubilee, after our show that night at midnight, um, this one number called Red Fans, they had those dancers. We had all of our things, our costume, the wardrobe person came, the producer. And uh, we went across the street and we got changed in the back area and set up. And uh, we did the number. We did the number to her music that, you know, we staged and everything, spent a day rehearsing on stage. And then she walked out, she got her key and um, it was televised. And then with J-Lo, she loved Jubilee so much um, that she used that number red fans number in her show um at least the costumes and the fans to one of her tracks and when she uh, did the what was it the new year's eve show i think it was at caesar's palace maybe maybe not but that one time so we did that and she loved it so much and she loved the costumes and the fans that when she announced her residency in vegas she did it on the ellen show and so she had about 10 of us dancers and the producer and the wardrobe um flown to la and we were there for a full day and we um, got to dance on the Ellen show with JLo and then take pictures with her. And so because of things like that, I've, I've had a lot of really awesome experiences um, that I'll never forget because, you know, it is Vegas and they, everybody wants to do the Vegas bigger and better. Right. <laughs> and when you're in the show like Jubilee, um, it draws attention to celebrities because they're like, Oh, like you, you, those costumes are so unique. You know, the Bob Mackie design, some of those costumes cost 10, $20,000. So if, you know, a celebrity can incorporate that, um, especially if they were, they're going to be working in Vegas, what's more Vegas than that. So the verdict then, I mean, how close 
is this movie to the showgirls lifestyle? I, I feel like after having this conversation with you, if I was to put it on a, a zero to 10 scale of realistic, I, I would probably put it at about a two. <laughs> 100%. 100%. And the thing is, is like those one-off moments, like, yes, there might've been, you know, in a six month period where I had friends in town and after the show, you know, maybe one weekend, we spent a whole weekend and partied our faces off after I would get off the show. And then that whole weekend, the week after, I felt like crap. But that was one moment in a six-month contract that that happened, you know? And so they took all of those one-off moments and made it, you know, a huge extra over-the-top, uh, this-is-the-way-the-life-is kind of movie. You know, actually, looking back on our conversation and all the things we went over here, I- I'm I'm actually starting to think that maybe a two out of a 10 is, is actually being a little too generous. Yes, I'd agree. I'd agree. Maybe let's give it like a (laughs) 1.2. Danny, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and uh, I've enjoyed having you on to have this conversation. And now I'm going to have to go watch the movie again for like the third time this week. My wife is getting a little (laughs) suspicious of of the situation. I'm not going to lie. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I was really excited. You wanted to talk showgirls with me. I love talking showgirls and I love talking about that movie because I, I think uh, we could probably have this conversation in another 20 years from now and uh, it'll still be valid. <laughs> if you want to go deeper into the world of showgirls and really who wouldn't search out the 2019 documentary, You Don't Know Me directed by Jeffrey McHale. You can find it for rent or purchase on several streaming platforms, including YouTube, Apple TV, and Amazon Prime. I've got a link to the trailer for You Don't Know Me in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Oh, 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 o